so having a bored ape as your uh andrew you're looking at me like i'm speaking madness i, you, you're I can like see bored ape. <laughs> oh, I'm just, uh, just i'm just so glad we got here i'm so glad we got here this is <laughs> i really want yeah, to so Welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. For this episode, we're taking a look at the new world, that is the metaverse, Web3, and NFTs. Web3 is the newest phase of the internet, which is often characterized as the read, write, and own internet. The premise is decentralization. Ordinary users own the internet, unlike Web2, the internet most of us are familiar with, where only a handful of tech players dominate. And within Web3, there exists the metaverse, where users experience the web as a virtual reality. If you haven't done so yet, you can access the metaverse as an avatar using a platform such as Sandbox or Decentraland. And part of this virtual world involves NFTs, which no doubt you will have heard of. NFTs enable metaverse users to exchange value and verify ownership of digital assets. In 2021, the NFT market grew to $41 billion. And JP Morgan Chase estimates that the metaverse will infiltrate every sector and become a $1 trillion market opportunity soon. Many of the world's largest companies are investing and building in the virtual space, while retailers and artists are selling NFTs at an increasingly high value. So how much of a Wild West is Web3? Why are companies building in the metaverse? And why are entities and individuals alike buying into it? Are NFTs really here to stay? And if so, how do you create and sell them? Ultimately, what legal issues lie behind these questions? We were very excited to speak with Nick Abrahams, Global Head of Technology and Innovation at Norton Rose Fulbright and creator of the world's first AI-enabled privacy chatbot. Nick also hosts the popular podcast Web3 From Mystery to Main Street about businesses embracing crypto. A link to this is in our episode description. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm delighted to join you. So a question I bet many of our listeners have Googled. Some maybe have Googled, some have figured out the answer. Others have heard of it, but they don't know what it is. Web3. What is yes. Web3? <laughs> so it's a, it's a great question, and it's really an important place to start when talking about, I guess, the future of technology and particularly converged technologies. And so the easiest way to think about Web3 is it's an umbrella term that covers a range of technologies. So effectively blockchain, uh, NFTs, decentralized finance, cryptocurrency, and, and the metaverse. All of those things have largely one thing in common, which is blockchain. And for years, of course, blockchain has been a bit of a solution in search of a problem. And crypto was the first example of it with Bitcoin back about 13 years ago, which was our first touch of blockchain. And now it's it's evolving and Web3 is that evolution. So you basically start off with Web1, which is sort of 94, 95 to 2005, which is a very first experience of the internet. And you may recall, Andrew, that, that time where we 
you know, you could you could read sort of glossy brochures. There were nice photos on the internet, but you couldn't do your banking, and you weren't able to uh, sort of book travel and so forth. So that was Web One. It was very much just a read experience, and then Web Two came in two thousand and five, and you had a read write experience. So you could do a whole range of transactions on the internet, and particularly things like social media became massive. So we've had this read write experience until now. And so now what we're looking at is this real um, explosion of opportunities, because not only can we read and write uh, on the internet, but now for the very first time, we can own digital assets. And so that's what NFT technology allows, which is actually owning things on the internet. So that's one key differentiator. The second one is that we are moving towards a more immersive experience of the internet as the internet moves from a two-dimensional experience to a three-dimensional experience and the, the so-called embodied internet and that's where the metaverse comes in. And just a side note to that, when I was uh, reading about this, I'm seeing reference not just to Web3 but also Web4 and 5. Oh. Where, where, is that just a misnomer at the moment? Or do you think it's still, obviously still good? So, uh, yeah, I, look, I think it's, um, you know, there, there is discussion around, you know, a, a, you know, a fully immersive experience where you get to Web 4, uh, where we, you know, your, your ability to distinguish between the real world and the virtual world becomes quite difficult. And it's so engaging that you don't really care. Um, I think I think we probably just need to get over sort of Web three because Web three is at its very earliest stages, and and one of the issues around uh, Web three is really we're waiting for for the solution to actually become super engaging. So we know where it is engaging, and that's in gaming. So so gamers, uh, you know, they become fully immersed, and the interesting thing about gaming is that um, that has that is the area where we're seeing the business models of Web3 and the future of digital assets being established. And there's a very good reason why Facebook changed its name to Meta and is spending, you know, $10 billion plus every year on, on its Metaverse platform is because what they have seen is that gaming now has a has a very social element to it and it's a it's a deeply engaging social experience but a lot of gaming these days involves working with a community and a group and achieving goals but also a lot of gamers time is spent in in quite social interaction and so the social media platforms recognize that they've got a ticking clock where uh, they need to to get fully immersive uh, or they will they will lose ground to either the gaming solutions which will uh, take over or other players using similar sorts of strategies. Mm -hmm. Nick, at the start of the discussion, you mentioned converged technology. Use that term; it's an interesting term. When you make reference to gaming, I'm picturing what we're seeing so far from these early experiences and people in the metaverse, uh, and it seems to be sort of what what you're describing right now, which is a breaking down of the barrier between a construct that people understand as a video game and a social media community. That that's correct. And if you come 
to meta to the metaverse such as it's called um from a non-gaming experience then your experience of of the metaverse platforms will be through uh something like decentraland or sandbox uh and for most of us that will be a pretty ordinary experience and it's an experience that has been around since about uh you know probably 2012 or 2013 with there was a company called second life which had you know effectively a metaverse style experience the the graphics on metaverse experiences like decentraland and sandbox have not really advanced since second life so over a decade so actually for most of us um who who don't come to it from gaming it will be a bit like why am i here what am i doing so what changes it is that people can build now on these metaverse platforms and own assets so previously when we had second life and second life still exists but second life was um you know if you bought anything in second life uh then that was something that you bought in second life you paid the fee for it in second life and if you tired of second life you couldn't take it anywhere whereas now um if you're the the concept of the metaverse is you can there's a whole range of different uh vendors so people can get into these metaverse platforms set up a business selling you know avatars or you know in some of the gaming platforms they're selling suits so-called skins and um you know magic potions you know the fab swords and so forth they are they are people they are not the actual game owners but rather they are third parties who've gone in and you're able to establish a business in there you're able to sell these digital assets and then there's a secondary market for the digital assets so if you are in this metaverse land you know could be one of the game platforms for example and you bought that skin and that skin cost you uh, you know, let's say the equivalent of a hundred US dollars. Um, if you tire of that game, you can then sell that skin and um, and move to another platform. And ultimately, there's some bridges now where you'll be able to move to other platforms with that skin as well. So that's the fundamental change, which is no longer is it just uh, the owner of the metaverse platform dictates everything it's a it's an environment where it has its own economy and you can start your own business there and you can um you know you can trade with people on those metaverse platforms platforms are almost like marketplaces in a way right that's a good way of thinking about it it's a marketplace or it's you know it, it should be regarded as as an economy and i think it's how can the metaverse platform owners create an environment where there's a community and and web3 is all about community and that's something we never really talked about with web2 web2 is an e-commerce proposition you've always got social media and then you've got e-commerce social media is about community so you look at that combination of the community of social media together with e-commerce but um you you have to on a, in a metaverse platform you have to create a community environment so that's why we've seen a few of the early adopters uh sort of well-known entertainers like snoop dogg and so forth who are able to bring a community uh around them and and you know we'll see that develop over time who creates these platforms and what are the advantages disadvantages of deciding to create a metaverse platform as opposed to just entering an existing platform like sandbox or decentraland yeah yeah 
no, that's a that is a great question. Why build a metaverse or why why buy into a metaverse? Yeah. And so, um, you know, if we look at sort of some of the bigger new entrants in terms of brands, so Nike have been very active with uh, setting up, you know, quite a big experience, and that's that's really about making sure they are very close to the um, particularly the under 30 market. Uh, Nike recognizes that they need to be close to that market and they've built on top of someone else's platform uh, because you know it has the benefit that Nike's not the one who has to generate all of the traffic. So it's not dissimilar in some respects to a shopping mall mm. uh, type idea, which is where you are expecting that metaverse platform to generate people to come along and then Nike has the fused fused experience which is you can go into certain Nike stores and that links into the metaverse platform and so forth then you've got people who are you know buying virtual sneakers etc and then you've got other players so JP Morgan for example um that just opened a um just a, a lounge uh, in Decentraland. So much of this stuff is still at the experimental stage, not not a lot of uh, sort of massive revenue, I think, being generated, but really important for these organisations, seeing that particularly the under 30s market is interested and that idea of community, which is super attractive to a marketer. If you can get, uh, tap into a community, then that's a that's a great opportunity, and so that's that's sort of why they are why they are getting into that. And Nike's probably a particularly good example from which to jump off to talk about NFTs in particular. I mean, I think about sneakerhead culture and yeah. you know collecting very rare sneakers that you never intend to wear, and in fact, the moment that you do, they they lose value, but their value is in their uniqueness and their rareness and their authenticity. So. With reference to Nike, tell us about where NFTs fit into this whole picture. So conceptually, it is the ability to own a digital asset. And so this is a brand new asset class. We've never had that as a concept before. So we've had tangible assets, obviously, you know, it's a real property. Uh, we understand how all that works, but actually owning, uh, how can we prove ownership of a JPEG on the internet. Uh, so using the blockchain, uh, you can by way of NFT technology. So basically, if you buy an NFT, then you are assured via the blockchain that it's on, and it might be on the Ethereum blockchain, which are a lot uh, built on. So that's a public blockchain, and you can prove that that is your particular digital asset. So, um, so, so that means once you have the ability to identify and defend uh, ownership of a digital asset, then th that means that you've created an asset class which has value, and and so that value can then be uh, traded, if you like. And so, where we first saw corporates getting into NFTs, it really started with the luxury brands, and so you saw folks like Gucci selling. Uh, NFT sneakers, you know, for $15, $20, that sort of thing, um, which which people could only use on their avatar, but you could 
own those NFT sneakers. So the uh, the sports apparel uh, folk, Nike and Adidas, uh, very big in that space. It's then morphed now, in, and that was it's sort of a combination of selling those particular NFTs as a revenue proposition, but also it's really about building a community, and that's what NFTs are about now. It's about building a community, and we've seen it now become an expansion of the loyalty program. And so in order to have a successful NFT, um, you, you really need to, to develop a community around it. And it's a very different prospect to any normal, like a gift card, for example. So a gift card, you know, you might, as Nike, you know, hand out a bunch of gift cards, but, uh, you know, people might be interested in that just because it's a, it's a pure gift card. But that doesn't work in an NFT situation. An NFT, um, project, you need to develop a community that wants that particular NFT. And so you build that community largely through uh, what's called crypto Twitter, which is just Twitter, but it's focused on crypto. And if you, it, the way to look at it is very difficult to get a, a successful NFT sale to someone who's not already on chain to convert someone who's not, you know, a believer in NFT or already owns NFTs. Got to set up a wallet and then you've got to go and you've got to get the crypto to buy the nft so there's a number of gates there you have to go through so so really what you need is people who are already on chain largely they're under 30. one of the good examples is with the australian tennis open in january this year uh they did they did a big um project in metaverse so they opened uh it was an identical um it was identical to the Australian Open tennis courts, and you could go in there as a whole bunch of things that you could do, play tennis against you know, your favourite tennis player, et cetera, et cetera. So they had a metaverse experience, and then they had an NFT drop of 6,500 art um, NFT tennis balls. And so they developed a following on Discord of 20,000 followers, which is quite a lot on Discord. And so that was a very successful NFT drop. And then the critical thing about NFTs is uh, the community, which I mentioned, and also the utility these days. So you can't just, you know, people aren't just buying, you know, a pretty picture. Um, it's got to be some value to it. And so what the NFT art balls gave as a phase one uh, utility proposition. So there were six and a half thousand um, NFT balls and they each ball corresponded to a part of the tennis court. And if the winning shot in that there's there was basically 10 finals across all the different things so singles doubles men's women's etc 10 finals um across the 10 finals if the winning shot hit that part of the court that corresponded to your nft then you um you got sent that game ball and you got you know a bunch of other prizes as well so that was stage one of the utility proposition and then there's there's further stage so there'll be further nft drops and free drops and so forth and the way that the web3 world looks at nfts is it's like buying into a stream of future dividends where by buying this particular nft you get rights to subsequent nfts and as they get dropped that's like getting a dividend. So that's a very unusual way to think about a dividend stream, but that's that's what they talk about. That also links into the debate in the US about whether it constitutes a security or not. 
right for the purposes yeah. of regulation so that is a that is a really key point to to focus on the other example i was that was coming to my mind as well was this board ape yacht club isn't that another yeah. example of where there's a ton of following and loyalty behind various pictures of the same board ape in in different outfits and what you're hinting at is the sense of community that is behind nfts because you know a common question that also comes up with nfts once we like understand the basics of, of what they are next question is what is all this fuss about really and where is this going and is this a bubble that is ultimately going to burst but i think what you're saying is that the product is evolving and it's being tied to lots of uh, linked product and also coming back to to nike the tying the nft with a product in real life and marrying mm -hmm. the two um so maybe that is a is a good off front to talk a little bit about the key legal issues that we are seeing with nfts yeah 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 and i think so with board ape yacht club and so forth so that that's obviously not a corporate proposition and so that's what I call flex club NFTs. And so they are really, they are relatively small clubs. So there's 10,000 board apes and people buy those because they get further utility. So they get, you know, um, so-called mutant apes and then ape coin. And so there's a whole range of different things that are provided, which have some theoretical value. So um, they are also there because if you've got a board ape, you're kind of in the in crowd with the crypto crowd. And so it's about digital flex. You know, I, I put that off to one side because I mean, that, that doesn't feel like that's a sustainable business model necessarily, but you know, who knows where, where that all ends up. By digital flex, do you mean like literally? Yeah, flexing, showing off. Yeah, it's digital showing <laughs> off. So it's the equivalent of having, you know, a Lamborghini in real life. So, you know, we put that sort of flex club where it's, it's digital showing off. We need to recognize there's a community out there of people who have made untold fortunes on uh, in crypto, like really extraordinary amounts of money. And I say untold because they're not about to tell the tax office that they have all this crypto. And so um, they do not want to transfer that that crypto into fiat currency uh, because that's that's a sure way to get tracked. So you can. If you're good enough, you can stay largely anonymous um, with your crypto holding. As soon as you off ramp into fiat, then you you run the risk of you know the tax authorities coming after you. So so what has happened? And this is a, this is my theory, and this you know could be completely wrong. But you know one of the things that's driven up these flex clubs is you've got a lot of people who've made really extraordinary amounts of money, but it's sitting there in crypto and they've had to create a digital asset class that they can invest in um, because otherwise that crypto is just sitting there not earning anything. So, so out of that came NFTs, out of that came this idea of uh, board apes and uh, crypto punks and so forth, these flex clubs where, you know, highly desirable sort of digital assets that go up in value. So. So that's a that's my theory around sort of why those have have started. But I think you you put board apes off to one side. It's it's sort of very difficult to comprehend. I think similarly with art NFTs, and we saw you know an artwork by a chap called Beeple sell for sixty nine million dollars. You know that seems extraordinary um, that to most of us. So for singular items that are that are sort of fall under that art category. You know, we put that aside, but we start to see real value coming is, as I've said, the corporate NFTs, which is really around loyalty and building 
brand community. And then particularly collectibles have been successful. So um, the NBA, the National Basketball Association with their Top Shots NFTs, which are you know, a great Canadian company, Dapper Labs, um, created, there's more than $700 million US of Top Shots. So basketball NFTs changed hands last year and the NBA gets 5% of every secondary sale. So that, I mean, that was a clarion call to sports codes around the world. And, and basically every sports code in the world now has an NFT project of some description, either already dropped or, or in, in progress. So, so I think the collectibles market is solid. And then, you know, Elsa, you talked about um, the concept of an NFT that's linked to a physical asset. What they call that is, is fidgetal, um, which is sort of a, an awkward word to say, but in fidgetal, you've got a combination of the digital and the physical. And it's a, um, it's a, it's a tricky area to advise on, and it's, a, it's sort of the hardest area, frankly, of the digital asset space, because let's say, for example, a, um, you know, an NFT of, uh, you know, of a great basketball moment, um, so a LeBron James dunk, an NFT of that. So that all exists on chain. It just all exists as a digital asset. So you can validate whether that exists um, just by looking at the blockchain. You don't need a third party to say, yes, that's correct. That is the original LeBron dunk um, JPEG. The technology can do the validation. The problem when you get a combination of digital and physical is how do you prove that 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 physical asset actually exists and so um penfold which is a big wine company did a um a digital uh, nft which was they issued uh nfts which were redeemable for a bottle of premium wine and so for penfold that was a good deal because um for premium wine at least for penfold their biggest uh, market is gifting and it's very difficult to gift a bottle of wine much less a bottle of premium wine but very easy to gift an nft because i can literally just send you uh, an email and that has the the code in it and then you can choose to either keep that nft and um and then you can redeem it and get the bottle of wine so you're comfortable because penfold you know i trust it's a solid brand i trust that the wine will be there um or you could re-gift it or you could trade it uh, so that that's been very successful. They've done three drops now, and in fact, NFT liquor is a very very um, fast growing space. We'll see lots more about that. And in fact, the, one of the bigger players in that space, I contacted them the other day for a client to see if they could do a project, and they said actually we're not taking on any new projects until 2024. Um, so that's a decent business where you know they're 18. They've got 18 months worth of projects already uh, in there. So. So digital liquor is a big is a big opportunity, but getting to also the the issue with the StockX case. So you know what we've got there is this idea that um, uh, you know the, the the company StockX has NFTs of sneakers that it is holding. Uh, so physical sneakers. So once again, it's a digital concept. So very similar to our Penfolds example. So StockX is selling NFTs and those NFTs are redeemable for the sneaker and StockX is holding on to that sneaker. So very similar to the idea that 
Penfolds is selling an NFT of a bottle of wine and that NFT is redeemable for the bottle of wine. Similarly, StockX, it's just an NFT which is redeemable for the sneaker. And so um, Nike's not happy um, about that because they say that the sale of the NFT is a breach of their IP and so forth because it's an image uh, of the sneaker. And so StockX is saying that, uh, well, no, this is very similar to you know what happens every day on eBay. And so it's merely a digital representation of the actual sneaker and we've got the sneaker. It's a genuine secondary sale. We don't know where the courts uh, will find on that. If this was just an advertisement, uh, then, you know, Nike wouldn't, wouldn't be saying anything, but it's because of the fact that the NFT is a digital asset and it's the NFT that's being sold and the NFT its utility is that it is linked to a physical sneaker. Uh, so that's that's the challenge. It's an interesting uh, concept of value because ordinarily it's like having a token or a voucher and you can trade it in for the good ultimately. But actually the, the value of the voucher, in this case, the NFT, is it can be in the StockX case 10, 20 times the value of the, of the physical product behind it too and so I think that's a really interesting point where your value is to some extent tied or maybe backed by the physical item but then the physical item is worth way less than the going rate for the NFT at that moment I can see why it seems uncomfortable oh absolutely Uh, so in Nike's case they are also in the business of selling digital sneakers as well so they've got a bit of a step up um, because they can say, well, you know, we, we also sell digital sneakers. So the NFT um, that's being sold um, is also it's very similar to something else that we sell. And so there's concept of passing off. In another um, quite significant case, which is the Hermes uh, case, where we've got the sale of the so-called Meta Birkin. So NFTs, which are drawings of the of Hermes famous Birkin bag. That was sold for, you know, mid $40,000 range US, uh, which is, you know, more than what you would pay for a real Birkin. And Hermes don't take kindly to that. And so I've brought an action against the artist. So basically you've got these NFTs, so just drawings of Birkin bags that have sold for four or five times what an actual Birkin bag gets sold for. So Hermes is saying there's IP infringement and there's uh, passing off um, as if it's Hermes and so forth. And then interestingly, the artist, uh, their their defence is that this is art and it is no different to Andy Warhol and the Campbell soup cans. Mm. And you know, we know that you know there was uh, you know the, there's the celebrated series of Andy Warhol's um, Campbell soup cans where he elevated the Campbell soup can to high art and and they traded for a lot of money um, and so that's the argument there that these NFTs are in fact art and art is therefore you know in some way protected so it remains to be seen uh, how the courts find in that case but um, you know. You can see you can see the arguments on both sides. And I'm just interested, just practically speaking, if a company is thinking about setting up their own NFT, 
in a nutshell, how do they go about doing that? So the NFT world, if you look at the way the numbers have gone, in 2020, the NFT market was 13 million US dollars. 2021, the NFT market was 41 billion US dollars. So, so this is a market that's really only two years old and really only one year old in terms of any real market significance. So I've got to say, we are all figuring it out as we go. There's a few plays out there right at the moment, which are sort of doing NFT as a service where all of the technology is looked after in a very um, simple and easy way. Um, and and that's, that works well for artists, but in terms of the corporate um, sector, very few organizations have um, a, the technology capability. It's not enormously complicated technology, but it's new and it's blockchain. So you need someone who's a blockchain specialist. And then most importantly, you need an agency that can help actually uh, generate the demand for the NFT. Because as I mentioned, this is not about just getting a pretty picture and dropping it out there. Um, you need to generate the demand. So you need to spend a lot of time working through the Discord channel, through the crypto Twitter channel, getting that um, going. So, so as an organization, if you want to drop and if you want to do an NFT program, then step one is finding a, a technology solution provider and be a, um, you know, a digital marketing agency. And sometimes those two come together and often because this is such um, early stage, you're dealing with much smaller organizations. So it's not the big uh, technology companies or the big technology service providers or integrators aren't, aren't in this space yet. And then in terms of the way that you analyze the, um, the legal relationships. So uh, you've got to figure out what are you actually giving with the NFT? And as I said, utility is a critical element of this. Are they getting the IP in the actual image? And more often than not, um, people aren't getting the IP in the image. And that for IP lawyers um, creates quite a bit of uncertainty because if they're not getting the IP, what are they getting? And so it then falls to sort of this, this definition, if you like, which falls in as part of the so-called smart contract, which is part of the coding. And so in effect, it's a, a personal use right um, to use the image on the internet, in social media, etc. Um, but not to create derivative works from it uh, and not to use commercially, things like that. And then what do you say about the, the subsequent utility? And that obviously gets complicated in terms of a, a fidgetal proposition. So if it's uh, penfolds and the ability to redeem uh, the NFT for something physical, then what are the terms upon which that redemption can occur? What's the time frame? And, you know, I've had one client who's like, yeah, no, we, we really love that idea of redeem. I'm like, okay, well, you know, how long are you going to keep that redemption window open for? Because people will buy this because they want to trade it potentially. And, and so they'll see that, um, you know, if it's only six months or a year, then the trading window is relatively short. So, so you've got to figure out all of those commercial terms and then um, embody those into the actual coding um, as much as you can. So you put that into the smart contract. So some simple things which can be coded in, which is really attractive, and I mentioned it before with respect to top shots, um, this idea of getting a percentage of the secondary sale, 
which is incredibly attractive. So the idea of every time you know the basketball, the the image of LeBron is on sold, uh, that five percent of that through smart contract coding just automatically goes back to the NBA. The same with artists, and that's a real breakthrough for artists because obviously. Artists have never had an opportunity to get a piece of the secondary sale, and now it can be hard coded in. So, so you basically try to code in what you can. And the problem uh, with NFT and blockchain and crypto and so forth is that unlike normal technology solutions, when you launch a normal technology solution, um, it's it's generally got got bugs in it. You know, you can't do that with an NFT solution because literally as soon as you drop it that is locked forever and your ability to actually come back in and change the code is incredibly complicated and, and almost impossible so so when you think about it that's a big shift in mindset for technology companies which is it has to be the code has to be 100 percent uh at the time of deployment and then of course we get to that uh, old chest out of you know what happens if people breach those terms and conditions and um, and that's where lawyers come in that back in you know the early days of the internet so 96 97 98 lots of discussions around oh there's going to be an international internet court and you know, there'll be some sort of global standard and so forth and as we've seen that's just not true and that's never going to happen um, because countries will not cede sovereignty uh, over their citizens. So we're not going to see any sort of global organization that takes responsibility for this. Courts will, will, will just apply existing legal principles and they will look at what's happening and, uh, and we'll see how it turns out. So I think, uh, you know, my, my belief with Web3 is that uh, digital assets are here. Um, in five years time, digital assets will be an absolute mainstay or you know a significant part of the economy and financial services um, but the trajectory from here to five years away is not going to be linear there's going to be a lot of fraud there's going to be a lot of technical hiccups a lot of projects are going to go poorly and uh, so people just need to recognize there's enormous volatility it's a very dangerous space I think it's fascinating I would encourage organizations to certainly those that are consumer facing to look at you know what the opportunities are in web3 and get involved in a measured way such that uh you know we see them rise up as digital assets uh flourish over the next five years well nick uh i don't think we're gonna wait five years before asking you to come back on the podcast and pick this conversation up but this has been fantastic thank you so much Thank you. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Austin. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. And please, uh, if you uh, if you are so minded and want to learn more about Web3, then um, please feel free to listen to my podcast, uh, Web3 From Mystery to Main Street. We'd love to, where we uncover stories about mainstream companies that are using Web3 technologies. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, 
please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.